this passage that we're going to look at uh, this morning. And uh, it'll go on into verse 10 using this same phrase, though, or chapter 10, though chapter 10 is a little bit different. We find this phrase, and I think as I was looking in the back, it is the title of uh, the lag lesson for uh, this morning, and it is appropriate because of its significance for us. The writer of Hebrews here talks about Jesus appearing once for all and then offering himself once for all. What's so important for us in, in hearing this phrase, in thinking about this phrase, is I, I think from it we begin to understand how big and how powerful our God is. Because He has done something for us that is for all time. It's something that is permanent And it's something that cannot be taken away from us. It's powerful in that way. And so I invite you this morning, if you would stand with me as we read in chapter 9 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 15. The Bible says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You may be seated. 
This passage talks about two things that I believe are extremely important, and yet two things that we often want to avoid discussing. This passage talks about the power of the blood of Jesus Christ and the salvation we have in Him from judgment. These are just two things that just frankly aren't popular. And they're not popular because they don't always make us feel good. And unfortunately, we live in a time where we like to feel good. Like when I don't feel good, I like to get in my car and I drive around the corner here, drive right down the road under the bridge, and there's a place called McDonald's. And McDonald's does not actually have food that is that great. I don't know if you knew that or not. It's not particularly healthy. It's not healthy at all, actually. Even the things on their menu that are supposedly healthy are not healthy. But I go there and I feel good when I get a McChicken sandwich or a Big Mac or a McChicken sandwich and a Big Mac. I feel good. And why does McDonald's want to get their food to you so quickly? It's so that you feel good quickly. And I think that for the most part, our society has become a reflection of McDonald's. And maybe McDonald's has become a reflection of our society. I don't really know which way it works. I'm not an anthropologist or a sociologist or a psychologist or any of those things. But we kind of look like McDonald's. And so now if you order cable or satellite, you get DVR and you can record up to six shows or eight shows at one time so that you don't miss anything. But then you can also get things on demand. And that means you can just go anytime and watch these TV shows. Now think about it, especially some of you who are a little bit older, think about a time when you had three at most television channels. But now we've come to the point where you can get women's lacrosse from California on channel 355. Nobody even knew in North Carolina that there was lacrosse in California 50 years ago, and now you can watch it on TV and you can become a fan I saw someone in this church yesterday post the results of a sporting event, and I thought, wow, you know, what is this? Is it football or is it basketball? It was gymnastics, and somehow they were keeping up with the scores of a gymnastics tournament on the internet. Why? Because it's what we do now. We want everything at our fingertips right there in demand all the time. And we want it to be exactly the way we want things to be. When we begin to look at the Bible and its teaching about God's punishment for sin, we leave the realm of things that make us comfortable. We leave the McDonald's society, if you will, 
Because that's not the way God does things. See, you and I have become accustomed to treating sin and treating our disobedience toward God as no big deal. And in doing so, it's, it's not as if our beliefs have really changed that much. It's because we have become more of a reflection of our society. And as our society, even from the foundation of our country, has began to constantly minimize sin, the church has done so as well. But the message this morning, this text this morning, is not dealing with you and I needing to understand that sin is an important issue to God. Because God could care less what we think of sin when it comes to what He's going to do about it. Just because we change our views on what is wrong and right does not mean that God will. And you and I are very fortunate this morning that that is not the case. Because God does not change on a whim based on what you or I feel. God demands a high price for sin. And in this text, he explains to us how you and I who are sinful who have been sinful, and who will continue to be sinful, how is it that we can have some type of relationship with our Creator? How can we be as bad as we are, and yet a loving and good God still like us? Even more than like us, love us. He explains that here in these verses. And what I hope it does for you as you begin to understand what God thinks about sin and the high price that God has paid because of our sin, it might help you as you think about wrong and right. Because our standard is Christ. And if we set the bar lower, we're not setting it where God has put it. So let's look beginning here in verse 15. He tells us, and this this whole section kind of flows out of this idea in verse 15, that therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. The covenant idea, and I I don't know that even though we've talked about this a number of different times in the book of Hebrews, I, I don't know if I've explained this well. There are two really big covenants in the Old Testament that have tension with each other. If we go back into the book of Genesis, we see where God calls a man named Abram, and he calls him out of this land that he lived in, and he he shows him this new land, and he says that he's going to make his descendants uh, be like the sands of the, the seashore. He's going to be like the stars in the sky. They're going to be um, impossible to number. He makes this covenant with Abraham with, without the condition of obedience. So what I mean by that is Abraham 
doesn't have to follow all of these certain rules. As a matter of fact, the one sign that is given as the symbol of the covenant that God has made, this promise that God makes with Abraham, is the promise of circumcision. And as a matter of fact, we find out that really the one place where God will judge in that time is if that's not followed through. But then we flash forward to the book of Exodus, and it's the, the covenant that we read about here that's made with Moses. And the covenant that's made with Moses is very different because it is based on their obedience. It's based on them doing what God has called them and told them to do. And so we see this really neat picture there in Exodus and in Deuteronomy of, of these two mountains. And as the book of the covenant is read, as this law is read, there are part of the people on one mountain and part of the people on the other. And he will read these things. And he will say something like, you know, he'll, he'll read the law that God has given them. And he'll say, thou shalt not steal. And the whole group of people together will affirm it with a loud amen. And then we see that there's all of these blessings that God talks about. If you do these things that I've called you to do, I will bless you. I will bless you. I will bless you. But it's contingent upon their obedience. But on the other side, as they begin to read what happens if they don't, if you do not obey me, God says, I will curse you. And then we go through the rest of the Old Testament from that point forward. And what is it? It's about whether or not they obey. And so sometimes there's these great outpourings of national revival where the people obey God. And God blesses them. They conquer their enemies. The, their land expands. They have great wealth. There is prosperity throughout their entire kingdom. But there are also a lot of times, and maybe these outnumber the other, where they disobey. And the armies of the conquering kingdoms come in and they are defeated. Their walls are knocked down. Their children are killed. Their wives are carried off into slavery. Thousands die in battle because they didn't listen. And when the Bible here, especially in the book of Hebrews, talks about the old covenant, it is talking about the one that was made that was contingent upon, are you going to listen and be blessed, or are you going to disobey and be cursed? And then we come to Christ. And there's a tension with God. Because the first covenant says that he's going to bless them. And the second covenant says, hey, you've got to live up to these standards. And that first covenant that God made with Abraham is still very much in place. And so how is God, how is God going to be satisfied with a covenant that promises great things, but another that demands obedience. That's why he says here that Christ, in verse 15, is the mediator of a new covenant. The old covenant had no mediator. You didn't need one. Either you listened or you didn't. It's pretty clean cut. 
You did what you were supposed to, or you didn't. So now, God sends Christ because he, he has made this old covenant with them that was going to clearly show them they were not good enough. You know, we talked about a couple weeks ago about this idea of, of going and making a sacrifice, and on your way home, you realize you're still sinful. On your way home, you realize that you're still guilty before God. You know, you go all the way to the temple, you make this sacrifice, the priest does, does the ritual for you, you're, you've been covered by the blood of this animal that has died, and you, you head back home, and you're still guilty. But this new covenant has a mediator. This new covenant has a mediator that stands in between you and God. Because now you can be declared guilty by God, but Christ can show that your sin has been paid for. Christ, who died for us, stood in our place and became the sin that was separating us from God. He took it upon himself and therefore, in him, we have this mediator that talks between us and God and, and pleads our case before God. Well, what do we get out of that? Well, look at the first thing he says there, second part of verse 15. So that those who are called may receive, receive the promised eternal inheritance. He goes from talking about the, the forgiveness that we had, and we talked about that last week, and, and our conscience being redeemed by Christ, and he, he goes further and talks about what is ahead. He says, since Christ has died, since we have a mediator, we have some type of inheritance. Now remember, if you go back again to the book of Genesis, he's talking to Abraham. What did he promise? He promised him something that would last forever. If we go forward, we find when King David is king, he promises that there's going to be someone who sits on his throne forever. That this thing that the people of God have, this promise that they have, this covenant that's been made will never end. It's something that lasts forever. Well, friends, if you go back to the Old Testament and you understand how it flows, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, does it look like things for the people of God are going to last forever? Not even close. They've been carried off into captivity. Some of them have began to come back. They've, they've tried to rebuild the city and they've tried to rebuild the walls, but it's nothing like it once was. They've been conquered. They've been defeated. It has to look, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, like God's promises are not going to happen. Because it had all been contingent upon their obedience. But God has promised an eternal inheritance. He has promised us something that will last forever. And here it's made clear that Christ is the one who has given us that. How did it happen? He says the last part of verse 15. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. It's what, what God does here is, is really cool. Old Covenant said there had to be the shedding of blood. He's going to tell us here in these verses ahead when they had this big ceremony to commemorate God's promise and God's law, there's blood thrown everywhere. It's, it's really a horrific scene. 
Because after every part of the covenant is affirmed, animals are, are killed and their blood is thrown all over everything. Why would they do that? You know, we think that that's barbaric. We think that that's, you know, well, old-fashioned to me doesn't go quite back that far, but that's really, really old-fashioned. Why would they do something so disgusting? Because if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, God tells them that the penalty for their sin will be death. And God takes in that moment and kills animals and covers them. Go back and, go back and read it. Genesis chapter 3 sometime. God kills these animals and covers their nakedness. Even from that point in Genesis chapter 3, it took the death of an animal. It took the death of something. It took the shedding of blood for their sinful act to be covered up. And so we go to the book of Exodus, and what do they do? Every time they affirm one of the parts of the covenant, they slaughter all these animals and they spread the blood everywhere. And so we come to Hebrews and we want to know how it is that now our sins can be forgiven. And he says a death, a death, one death, one particular death has occurred that redeems them, the people of God, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So think about this. It took something dying for them to have forgiveness in the old covenant. And so now one single death has occurred and it covers sins committed under the old covenant. And the new. Isn't it amazing that even those people who were sinning in the Old Testament can have their sins forgiven under Christ? If there are any forgiveness there, it's through Christ. All forgiveness is through Christ, frontward from the cross, backwards, uh, forward and backward from the cross. So he's the mediator. The new covenant here then is described as God's will. He says in verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. How interesting to think about that. This word for covenant in the New Testament is the same word for last will in Testament. But here's the only place in the New Testament where it's used like that. So what he's basically saying here is that God has a last will in Testament that you would be saved. You know, we think about someone with an inheritance, and if you have enough money to have, uh, well, you should have one anyways, I guess, but you know, people that have great sums of wealth normally have one, and they spread their money out whenever they die. And you can't get that until they die. That's why we've seen whole movies about people who kill someone because they wanted their inheritance. We even go and we look at the New Testament where Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. And what was the prodigal son saying to his father when he asked for his inheritance? He was basically telling him, I wish you were dead. Because that's how you're supposed to get your inheritance, right? 
If you're a decent human being, you would rather have the person than what they're leaving you. Well, the Bible tells us here that God's last will and testament is that we would be saved. And it took His death on the cross for that will to be put in place. And once He died, as He says here, for where a will is involved, the death This is verse 16, of the one who has made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So follow me on this, because I'm still trying to figure it out too, but what it seems like he's saying there is if you go back to the book of Genesis, God calls Abraham, God makes a promise to Abraham. That was God's last will and testament. That was something God was promising him for, as the Bible describes it here, the end of the age. And so we flash forward thousands of years, and Christ dies on the cross, and at the moment of his death, it enacts the will that God had made with Abraham. God had made that promise, and when Christ dies, it goes into effect. And when it goes into effect, the good news for us is that means we get our inheritance. It wasn't available beforehand. It wasn't available the day before or the day before that. It wasn't available in the old covenant. It wasn't available any other way. But when Christ dies, we get our inheritance. And only through Him dying do we get it. Because if you follow here, he tells us the story about Moses, which I've already told to you. And when you get down to verse 21, he says, In the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, verse 22, under the law almost everything is purified with blood. And this is one of the most important verses in the book of Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. I was reading this week. You've probably seen it. Uh, I don't agree with everything in it by far, but last year Bill O'Reilly came out with a book called Killing Jesus. And he misses a lot of stuff in there. I'll just throw that out. Like, he misses a lot of stuff. But when you read his description of the beating that Christ takes, he's a very powerful writer. And when you read about about Christ having his hands tied to this post that the Romans would use to beat prisoners and this whip that is used. The book of Isaiah in chapter 52 and 53 tells us that by his wounds we are healed. By his stripes, by his beating, we're healed. Talking about Christ. And you read about Christ being whipped over and over and over again. And then you read about the crown of thorns being placed on his head and and how that would have pierced his skin and the blood would have flowed out of his head. And you hear about him carrying, carrying his cross up the hill and about the nails going through his hand. And you realize... That according to Hebrews chapter 9, every single drop of Christ's blood that was shed there was shed in the same way 
as though sacrifices had been made for generations, except that the blood that Christ shed was perfect. And it was the only acceptable sacrifice to God. And in that shedding of His blood, our sins have been covered. They're not covered any other way. They're, they're not covered because we are good enough. They're not covered by our works. They're not covered by who your mother or your father is or where you go to church. They're only covered by that precious blood. His blood inaugurates a new covenant. And in that covenant, you and I have the forgiveness of of sin. Someone had to die. Someone had to die. There's people out there today who think that's terrible, that that's barbaric. Why would God kill his son? God's such a mean God. No, go back again. This is not anything new. The New Testament is not a new story. You go back and you read what God had always demanded. He said, when you disobey me, someone's going to die. Because he took it seriously. We don't. We don't think it's a big deal. We let whatever happen. We go through life and we don't worry about it. We just pat somebody on the back and we say bless their heart or whatever. God takes it seriously. He took it seriously in Genesis chapter 3. And he took it real seriously at the end of all four gospels. When he puts his son on a cross and he kills his son as a sacrifice for you. God's serious about it. He's serious about sin. But in it, he gives us life. Because he sheds his blood, then we have an eternal inheritance with him is the first thing he talks about. And then the second thing he talks about in these last few verses is the fact that while we have this eternal inheritance, we also escape His judgment. And when we don't talk about the blood of Christ, we're most definitely not going to talk about the judgment of Christ. Because we think it's silly or mean or foolish. Why would God do that? But it, let me encourage you to think about it like this. If, if Christ was willing to send His Son to die... Let's not even worry about what it was for. Let's say he just sent him and he died for no reason. If he's willing to do that, do you not think he's also willing to judge people? He made you. You might say that I can't judge you because I'm not perfect and you're right. And I could say that to you. But God is perfect. He has every right to judge his people. And he will judge all that he has created. But he has promised us that through the blood of Christ, that judgment is not for those who've been forgiven. There's nothing to judge in what he's talking about here. Look with me as in verse 23. He's talking about the copies, and we have looked at this several times, the, the copies of the heavenly things that have been purified, how, how what Christ did here and the things that were here in the temple and in the tabernacle were copies of things that God has in heaven. But he says in verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. It's a pretty important point. 
I think I said it last week. God doesn't go into the holy, or Jesus didn't go into the holy of holies to stand there. He went straight to God, and he does so on your behalf. Now he says in verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. This is one thing to remember. For instance, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not really eating the flesh of Christ or drinking his blood. You might think that's weird. That's what the Catholics believe. Why do they believe it? Well, I don't know. What's the problem with it? This says that the sacrifice has been made one time. The blood has been shed one time, once for all. It never has to be done again. His body was broken for us when he was whipped and when he was nailed to the cross and when after he had died, they they plunged the spear into his side. His body was broken for us once. It never has to happen again. And we should not try to sacrifice him again. Friends, if you've been saved by Christ, you don't need to get saved again. Why? Because it's happened for you one time. It was good enough one time. That's why I don't stand up here as some would do and try to get you to come down to the front and get saved every week because it happens one time. We might struggle and we might go through difficulties and we might go through challenges, but Christ's forgiveness happens once and it covers it all. Friends, that's good news. Because I know plenty of people this morning who are meeting in churches this morning all around our country and they're being told that they need to get saved again. They're being told that the blood needs to be applied to their life again. That their sins have removed its power somehow. But friends, let me tell you God's application to what the Bible says is the doorpost of our heart only needs to happen once. Friends, go back again. It's interesting because God doesn't change. He just tells the same story over and over again. You go back to the book of Exodus and the death angel was going to pass over Egypt on a particular night and he said, take the lamb and slaughter it and take the blood and apply it to the doorposts. And when the death angel sees that blood applied to the doorpost, he'll pass over. That's what happened. And it happened once. And from that, they were delivered. Friends, that's the great news that we have, is that Christ's love and power is powerful enough that it need only happen once. He says, but, and this is in verse 26, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin and and the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is not going to come back and do this again. He is not going to come back and live a meek and humble life somewhere in the Middle East and submit himself to authorities who will take him and beat him and kill him. He has done that once for all. We're not in need of anything else. What he has accomplished has covered everything. It was big enough to cover the sins of all those who will come to him. All those who will plead for his forgiveness. All those who will repent of their sin and believe. It will cover every single one. We don't need a bunch of other religions. We don't need another sacrifice. Christ's love has been enough. And so look what's going to happen. 
He says in verse 27, Just as it, as it is appointed man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. He says it's appointed for man once to die, and then there's the judgment. That's what we have. We have this life, whatever it brings us, whatever lot we get in it, and then there's judgment. But the good news for those who are in Christ is that he is coming again. And when he comes again, he will not deal with sin because it's already been dealt with. There's no need to do anything else with sin. What more can you do other than removing its penalty, which has been done? It's been finished. It's been completed. So you and I do not sit under the judgment of Christ. We do not sit under the judgment of God if we are in Christ. But rather, we know that He's coming once again to do what? Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. We call it the second coming of Christ. He came once. He shed His blood for you. Whatever else he did, what other miracles he performed, what other things he said, his purpose in coming the first time was to deal with sin. It's been dealt with. He comes again to save those who wait on him. See, we have hope that, that this judgment that, that we read about, go back to Genesis and you read page after page after page of God's judgment. Why? Because he's mad? Because he's angry? No, because we're sinful. He's been a good God in everything that he has done, and we have rebelled against him. And so the Bible says here that Christ came at the end of the age when God is wrapping everything up. He comes and he dies in our place to deal with sin. We couldn't get it right under Abraham's covenant. We couldn't get it right under Moses's. So he gives us Christ. And he says, come. He says, it's not about your works. It's not about your obedience. It's about your willingness to follow me. It's about repenting and believing. It's about turning from your sin and following after Christ. And he said, and I've taken the penalty. I have died so that you don't have to. This is, this is not everybody's favorite message. It's not mine. Actually, it's not mine. But if we leave this out, how do we, how do we tell someone about Christ? Because, see, Christ doesn't want to be your buddy. He doesn't want to just be your friend. He doesn't want to be some dude you talk to when you're about to hit a tree driving down the highway. He definitely doesn't want to be a guy whose name you use in profane ways when something's not going your way. He wasn't a good moral teacher only. 
So if you're going to tell somebody about this guy that you apparently go at least once a week, or hopefully you come at least once a week, and you say you worship, how is anything less than this appropriate for our worship? I know lots of good teachers. I had a bunch in college. I don't worship them. Most of them I probably wouldn't even take a bullet for. I mean, they're older than me. They've had a pretty good life, you know. I got six kids. There's a lot of politicians that have a lot of authority in our life. They have a lot of say in what we can do. I definitely ain't taking any bullets for them. We can vote another one into office. Sorry if you're a politician. So what then? What does Jesus have to be? What does he have to have done for us to worship him? And what are you going to tell somebody? I'm not saying you've got to go up to the guy at school tomorrow and be like, hey, listen, um, this dude lost all his blood for you so that you wouldn't be judged by God. It's not how you teach evangelism. But at the same time, what would it say about you if you believe less than this about Christ? Here's the Son of God who gave his life for you through a horrific death, the most horrific death that was ever imagined in the ancient world. And he died saying that this death was so that you could be forgiven and in right standing with God. See, we can't make the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, about less than his blood. Because the Bible just doesn't let us do that. The world does that. The world doesn't want to accept that. Because even though the world will put death and gore on TV, even though they'll show you that and promote that in video games and in movies, apparently it has no place in our worship. And the reason is, if you accept this, if you believe this, it has huge implications for your life. Because, listen, I, I love you guys, and I'm glad to be your pastor. But I'm not going to go through what Christ did for you. I mean, I can't do it, spiritually speaking, but physically speaking, it's not happening. And, and listen, you don't have to hurt my feelings. Most of you wouldn't do it for me, and that's cool. But Christ suffered and died for you. And so this morning, I would just ask you, what's, what's that mean? What, what, what's the implications of that for you? Because for me, it means things like getting on a plane and flying to Thailand. Because there's people over there who every day die and they don't die knowing that Christ is coming to save them. They die with no hope under the judgment because their worship is based on the psychology and sociology and philosophy of a man who's been dead for hundreds and thousands of years. There are people around there who worship millions of gods and they all have names and they have idols that sit in their homes and they need to hear about Jesus. So what's that mean? 
What's it mean to you that Christ died for your sin? It should mean everything. And it really should change what you're doing and how you're living. We have to respond because Christ has shed his blood for us and he's promised that he's coming again to save us because we're eagerly waiting on him. That's what it means. And that's how we should live. We bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. Thank you this morning that we have life. We have hope. We have mercy in you. God, I thank you that your grace is great. It's greater than our sin. It's, it's greater than anything. God, I thank you that your blood was shed for me, for each person here. God, you died to save us. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we sing, that we would just be reminded of the greatness of your grace and the compassion that we find in your mercy. God, you, you're serious about sin. But God, I'm thankful that we're forgiven in you. God, be with us this morning, leading guide us as we sing. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, and I would invite you to respond. Whether it's where you're sitting or here at the front, respond. Christ has died for you. We have hope in him. Respond as we sing.